I don't mind your showing me your legs. They're very swell legs, and it's a pleasure to make their acquaintance. I don't mind if you don't like my manners. They're pretty bad. I grieve over them during the long winter evenings. Okay, let's just leave my legs out of it for the moment. Uh, let's re start the recording, okay? You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello, and welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Jonas. And I'm Schneider, Christian Schneider. I'm a dick. A private dick. Please put it away now. Oh, yeah, sorry. At this episode, we read a great classic of crime literature, of noir literature, The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler. The Big Sleep is probably the quintessential noir story, partly because it is the most famous of Chandler's books, and Chandler, together with Dashiell Hammett, is the godfather of hard-boiled detective literature, but also partly due to the film version from 1946 with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. The story starts with our protagonist, Philip Marlowe, being hired by a rich old man who's being blackmailed. We don't really know why he's being blackmailed or how, but Marlowe is sent to find out. He encounters the two daughters of the old man as well, young, wild things in their 20s, but soon he realizes there's more to the case than meets the eye. And actually, the blackmailer is murdered. He investigates further, He runs into some danger himself, but he manages to get out of it all right, and all the loose ends are tied up at the end. The book was published in 1939. Chandler used several of his own short stories to create the famously Byzantine plot of The Big Sleep. Nevertheless, the book was a real success. Chandler went on to write many more novels with Philip Marlowe as his intrepid detective hero. And, as I mentioned, the film version with Bogart and Bacall was also a big hit. So the first thing that I would like to raise is that actually we've read this book already, haven't we? But we read it when it was called Casino Royale. And it's basically exactly the same thing. The first in a series of novels about a hero. He's kind of a tough guy, you know, but he deals with things. It has an interesting style. For the time, it has interestingly explicit descriptions of violence. And it ends with a big philosophical insight about how he's part of the new world and how the old world is gone now. Uh, Christian, what makes this different from Casino Royale, if there actually is a difference at all? It's interesting. I also had to think of Casino Royale, maybe because it is the first in a series of novels about a hero. But yeah, there is a big difference in the status as a hero between James Bond and Philip Marlowe. Bond, even in the books, is definitely the hero. He does everything correctly. He is clearly on the side of the good, maybe in a more brutal way than you would imagine. But still, you know, he's the good guy. Philip Marlowe is also clearly the good guy, but you wouldn't think so from the way he sees the world. There is hardly a more cynical and sarcastic narrator than Philip Marlowe. Nothing in this world, in Los Angeles of the 1930s, has any sort of meaning or... Yeah, just the same as for James Bond in Casino Royale by the end. Well, there's still a difference. James Bond goes on to fight against what he knows is evil and he knows there is something to fight for. Philip Marlowe, he doesn't have that conviction really. And it doesn't matter in the end because finally you will be sleeping the big sleep. 
And once you do, nothing really matters anymore. Yeah, the big sleep almost seems to be something positive, more positive than the trials and tribulations that you have while you're living. When we have shuffled off this mortal coil, you know, the whips and scorns of time and all that, I think I've heard that somewhere else before. But still, Philip Marlowe doesn't just give up. He also fights, maybe in a different way than James Bond, but he has a very clear code. Man's got to have a code. And... Philip Marlowe is quite clearly a man who sticks to his principles. He sticks to his guns, you could say. Haha. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's quite interesting. He doesn't like guns. He collects a lot of guns over the course of the novel. All the people that threaten him with the gun seem to somehow lose it to him. But he himself doesn't like to use guns, which maybe explains why so often he gets into really threatening and serious situations and has blackouts and is uh, imprisoned and so on. Is, is that why you said earlier that actually Philip Marlowe is a bit like Batman? We were discussing uh, The Dark Knight earlier and you mentioned that actually there's a lot of similarities between these two. Batman also doesn't like to use guns. So well, what, how else is Philip Marlowe basically like Bruce Wayne? Well, Batman is called The Dark Knight. And if you read The Big Sleep, there's so much imagery that compares Marlowe to a knight. Actually, at the very beginning, there's a stained glass window of a knight in a black suit of armor trying to free a lovely young maid that's tied to a tree. And he thinks, yeah, he's not making a very good job of it. I'll have to go up there and help him. So this knight imagery and comparing himself to the knight is there from the very beginning. Yeah, but it's also somehow broken. I mean, the tone he describes this night is very irreverent, very sarcastic. And later on, when he's faced with the naked advances of one of the daughters of his client, Carmen, he's playing around with a chessboard and moving a knight figure. And then he says, well, no, this is not a game for knights, and puts the figure back. So he basically realizes that to try to be like a knight, trying to be honorable and sticking to principles and not... Chivalrous. Chivalrous. Literally. Yeah. And not sleeping with the daughter of your client, particularly because she's maybe mentally handicapped. We Definitely mentally handicapped. Don't. We'll come to that later on when we discuss how fucking misogynistic this book is. Another parallel to James Bond, by the way. But he realizes that sticking to principles is basically a fool's attempt. And still he does it. In a sense, he's more reminiscent, to come back to another work we discussed, of a Kafkaesque hero. He is a bit like an existentialist Sisyphus who realizes that his task is really impossible, that he will never succeed. And even in this book, he doesn't succeed. He solves the case somehow. But the people who did something wrong are not punished for it. And he knows it. And he could just drive away and that's it. But basically, as you said, the case is left unresolved. He just says, yeah, I know all that shit that went on, um, so lock up your sister in an asylum now and I'll have nothing to do with it anymore. It's a pretty unsatisfying conclusion if you wanted justice to be served. But he basically makes things right in his own way, in his own code, sort of. Infamously, there are even parts of the plot which are never resolved. The question whether the chauffeur of the Sternwood family committed suicide or was murdered, it's never clear. And apparently, when the film version by Howard Hawks was made, the director phoned Raymond Chandler and asked, hey, by the way, what happened to the chauffeur? And Chandler answered basically, well, I don't know. The death of the author from the author's own mouth, isn't it beautiful? But this 
unresolved status again maybe adds to Marlowe's heroic status. In a world where things are not resolved, he can do nothing but go on. And that makes him the kind of dark knight or the chivalrous hero of this very sordid tale. Let's talk more about Philip Marlowe as a hero. There were several novels published with this hero by Raymond Chandler, but he's not really a hero, is he? He's he's a lot too conflicted for that, and also he's just too much of a bastard. Why is he a bastard? Well, you know, uh, for example, he comes into a house where there's a man who has just been murdered, and he doesn't call the police. All that he does is he takes the woman who's there away and he looks around for a bit for his own investigations and then he leaves. Somebody else happens to take the body away, but calling the police? Oh, that never occurs to him. Then again, he meets with representatives of the police and one uh, of them... Hang on, hang on. Being on the side of the police does not mean that you're a hero because the police can be pretty crooked as well, can't they? I mean, that's exactly my point. It's quite clear that the members of the police are... Yeah, again, very, very flawed. In the best case, they're just not interested in what's going on or just interested in their own glory. In the worst case, they're crooked and being paid off by the gangsters. And even the closest thing Marlowe has to a friend, Bernie Olds, says, Marlowe, get real. In this county, you will never get to do anything against the gangsters that basically control everyone. So forget it, Philip. It's Los Angeles. Actually, that brings us to another thing that is quintessential for hard-boiled detective fiction, the setting. And in the case of The Big Sleep, it's the geographical setting that's interesting. It is Los Angeles, the city of angels, that has been the setting for so many other noir films and stories and so on. But it's also the historical context that's interesting. This is the 1930s in the U.S., time of the Great Depression. And that explains why the world that Chandler describes seems to be so, to use one of Jonas's favorite terms, fucked up. up. Uh, Yeah, the Depression really shows there's a character of a former bootlegger. Prohibition is something that just ended. And generally, the whole mood of the novel is just very, yeah, for lack of a better word, depressed. It is a dark book where things happen in darkness, dark rooms, dark corridors, even dark exterior landscapes. It's raining the entire time. And I don't think that Los Angeles sees that much rain in a year than it rains in these few days that Philip Marlowe investigates there. So the Great Depression, it's not just an economical depression or a social depression. It also seems to be a moral depression. Chandler describes a society where you cannot rely on anyone. The poor people, those wannabe gangsters like Joe Brody or Harry Jones, just do criminal stuff to survive, just hustle their way through life. The rich people, they're worse. There's maybe the biggest difference between Philip Marlowe and James Bond. James Bond revels in consumerism, in capitalism, whereas Philip Marlowe basically states how much he hates the rich. And the Sternwood family is the prime example of how much money and wealth degenerate the character of the people who have it. But but only the young, because at the end, Marlowe actually talks about the nastiness, as he calls it. Well, the nastiness, as he would call it. And he's part of this nastiness. But one person in the entire novel is not part of the nastiness. 
the old man, old General Sternwood, and he's decided not to tell him about the crimes his daughters have committed, because actually it turned out that his younger daughter murdered the older daughter's husband when he didn't want to go to bed with her, because he doesn't want the old man to be part of this nastiness. So there is this respect for the older generation, you know, there was something pure about them. They're not as nasty as this new modern world. So this nastiness is presented as something very modern, something of the 20th century, whereas the old 19th century is idealized as this time of great heroes, also exemplified by the great portrait of uh, maybe not the general himself, maybe his ancestor, but that's basically right opposite the portrait of the knight. So again, like in James Bond, we have this respect for the ancien regime, for this great old time. But I think even that is very ambivalent because the Sternwood family made their money with oil. And that in itself is a symbol for how dirty this business of becoming rich and getting to the top is. That even with a spirit of pioneering, of standing for something respectable and old, doesn't keep you from getting your hands dirty. And even the old general, he's dying. And it seems to be a rather drawn out and horrible death. And on the other hand, the general himself says that, yeah, well, there is something in the Sternwood blood, something that is maybe about pride, but also about stubbornness and willfulness. And that is turned bad in his daughters, Carmen and Vivian. So no one really is exempt from that. Even the closest thing to a kind of innocent figure you have is the murdered son-in-law of the general, Rusty Reagan, who is used to be a bootlegger. Exactly. He used and he's Irish as well. Fuck the Irish. Fuck you, the Irish. Happy St. Patrick's Day. And as we said, he doesn't even really appear in the novel. He's dead and he's just remembered as this kind of good old guy who drinks with the general and is generally a lot of fun. And, well, he's killed senselessly. So this is even more depressing. And it gets even more depressing from a modern perspective when we think about how Chandler and Marlowe see the female half of Los Angeles's population. Yes, let's come to the, well, not even the representation of gender in the novel. Let's come to the misogyny. <laughs> Because at first I thought, oh, that's pretty interesting. You know, the women are kind of wild, kind of sensual, but they're not being judged for it. Well, no, it turned out, yes, that they are being judged for it a lot. One thing that is just jarring is the way that women react to Philip Marlowe. As I said, they literally fall into his arms. In the first chapter, Carmen walks into the room, sees him, topples over, and he catches her, and she's like, oh, and she sucks her thumb, and it's an oddly shaped thumb. It kind of looks like a penis. And it's just, what the fuck is going on with these women? Are they all lobotomized? Are they all high on pain? Well, they probably are high on painkillers. They drink a lot all the time as well, so maybe that explains it. Even Carmen's sister Vivian, who's described as a bit more sure of herself. She, she's the Eleanor in this novel, like in sense. No, no, let, let's not even compare these women to the women of Jane Austen, because Jane Austen, over a hundred years before, managed to write more complex, more interesting, more progressive women in her novel. Unfortunately, that's true. I mean, even Vivian is described as basically just going along with what Marlowe does. And like at the very beginning, she's showing him her legs being all sensual and stuff. But she just wants to know what is going on. And when he refuses her, she's really angry at him. And also the whole case basically comes down to that. 
Carmen killed her brother-in-law because he refused her sexually. And ultimately, she's hysterical in the old sexist sense of the world, you know? She has epileptic fits. Interesting to see that epilepsy was linked to mental illness and to degradation as late as the 1930s. Towards the end, when she tries to kill Marlowe, she's actually described as like an animal. Hissing at him. Hissing at him. He actually says, her face had the scraped bone look, aged, deteriorated, become animal and not a nice animal. So just in case there was any doubt, this woman, this wild woman, is horrible. She's murderous. She's wrong. And what's the solution? Just bang her up in an asylum where they can take care of people like her. Basically, none of the female characters, neither Carmen nor Vivian nor Agnes, the kind of lower-class femme fatale Marlowe encounters, do anything to show some sort of moral value. There is something of that in some of the male characters, in, as we mentioned, the General or Rusty Reagan or Harry Jones, but there's nothing about that in the female characters. And to make things worse, Chandler not only sees women as something weak and somehow degenerate, he also has the same view, obviously, on homosexuality, which is typical of the time, maybe. But it's still interesting that even in this world where there is so much moral degradation and there are so many horrible things going on, the worst thing is a gay man <gasps> living together with another man. What? Again, he's like James Bond in that aspect. And as far as I remember, there are no black people or Asians in this novel. I shudder to think how I would describe them, probably with a very Ian Fleming attitude, let's call it that. So, yes. You might think that I hate this novel. You might think that I had a very bad time of it. But I didn't. I actually quite enjoyed myself, and I'm quite thankful for you for suggesting it. And there's one thing that is really responsible for that. That is the style. I had never read a noir novel. I had only read a handful of crime novels even before. And this really overwhelmed me because I only knew the noir style from parodies like Dead Men Don't Wear Played or uh, The Big Lebowski, which I just watched recently, or the Calvin and Hobbes comics where Calvin imagines to be a noir detective, which, having read the quintessential noir novel, are actually really opposite. Oh my God, Bill Watterson is a genius, just in case you didn't know. So I was surprised by how self-consciously funny this style was. I was surprised by how much I actually laughed and laughed out loud whilst reading this. Uh, for example, when Carmen meets Marlowe and she says, tall, aren't you? And he replies, I didn't mean to be. That's funny. I, I mean, uh, you're quite tall. Did you ever use that line when somebody said that you were quite tall? Not yet. Maybe I should. Yeah, it's th th a funny one. I mean, nobody ever tells me that I'm tall, so... I'm yeah. very sorry about that. But I'm above average height, though. Like five centimeters. We're in Japan. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, the style is almost cliche. And rereading this, I thought, well, can I take it seriously? Because the... Yeah, occasionally it, it, it tips over into ridiculousness. But just occasionally. And most of the time it knows that it's being a bit silly. The constant similes, describing things, comparing them to other things in a strange way, that has become commonplace way of saying, yeah, this is noir, this is the noir cliché. And Chandler uses it all of the time, but you're right, he uses it in a self-conscious way. On the one hand, it is funny, and that fits the very sarcastic view that Marlowe has on many things. Other times, it is very original and gives you a better grasp on many things. What I realized reading this again is not only 
the interesting style in that regard, but also that his descriptions are really good. He can describe how things look in a very vivid way. And for a novel that takes place in many different areas of Los Angeles, where it is important to describe how is the atmosphere of that place. Chandler really knows how to use that to his advantage. The book is a lot more about atmosphere than it is about the plot. As you said, as you called the plot Byzantine. And it is confusing. And at one point, I didn't realize that one person was another person, and then it was this person, and then that person double-crossed them. What? Don't worry about it. Just go along with it, enjoy the atmosphere, and by the end, Philip Marlowe will give you a nice little concise summary of what happened with a bow on it and then you just go and leave the novel. Although he for the most time also doesn't know what's going on. I mean that's another interesting thing. He's no Sherlock Holmes. He's no genius. What he is is a guy who doesn't know when to stop and that is certainly a bad thing for him sometimes when he gets drugged or beaten up but it's also a good thing because he perseveres. He goes through and he solves the crime not by thinking a lot but by just doing things and again maybe that is the best thing that you can do in a world where thinking doesn't solve anything because nothing really adds up to something rational or coherent. So we should come to conclusions. Did we enjoy this book and would we recommend that you should read it? Jonas, what do you have to say? I did enjoy it. Um, I definitely don't regret having read it. Should you read it? Is it going to tell you something about humanity, about the human soul or whatever? Probably not. I haven't seen the film version. I would like to see it now because I like Humphrey Bogart as an actor. I, I always want to see more classic movies. Uh, I think you can get the same thing from that as well, probably. It's an interesting read. It's not a very long read, but not required reading, I would say, really. As much as I love Chandler and as much as I love this hard-boiled style in its many guises, I think... I agree. This is not required reading. It is really interesting. It's really interesting to see where the whole cliché thing came from. It's really interesting to see a different view on the 1930s in the US and to see how crime fiction kind of diversified. But I would agree that you don't really have to read The Big Sleep to get a grasp on what is noir or what makes this kind of fiction special. There's so many other things to check out, many of them even more elaborate, more sophisticated, more self-conscious. I think you're getting ahead of yourself. What would be your recommendation of something more elaborate, more sophisticated, more self-conscious to read? There's so many things that I could recommend. I am a fan of noir, especially for this very artificial way of dealing with things that nevertheless often still has a certain sense of seriousness to it. So I will try to limit myself to two recommendations. One of them, a film that actually takes itself very seriously to a certain degree, but takes the whole noir attitude to a very different setting, namely high school in our days, not the underworld of the 1930s. That film is Brick by Ryan Johnson. Brick is also quintessentially noir. The main character is basically a teenage Philip Marlowe, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And so you might think that this is quite ridiculous. Why are there high schoolers talking the kind of strange, hard-boiled dialogue of 
Hammett and Chandler. But still it works because you're drawn into this plot. You're drawn into this world of shadows and secrets and lies. And the message of Chandler's novels, that nothing is as it seems, that behind every respectable facade there's something dark, that is the message that Brick quite brilliantly brings across. The one time you recommend a movie and I have never even heard of it. I feel ashamed. <laughs> the other thing I want to recommend is more along the lines of parody or pastiche. And that is a novel by one of the most important American postmodern authors, Robert Coover. And it is quite fittingly called Noir. It is a parody of noir clichés. It is the adventures of a private detective called Philip M. Noir. Uh-huh, uh-huh, I see what you did there. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And he is basically very good when it comes to emulating the style of Philip Marlowe. He's not as good a detective. He knows how to describe the legs of his attractive female client. But then again, when it comes to remembering her name... He has to pass. He never remembers her name, even though he's told several times. So this is clearly a parody, kind of lovingly ridicules the pointlessness of many noir cliches, that it's more style than content. But still, you can see that it is a loving view and that hardball detective fiction and the film noir are something that Coover still very much likes. So, Noir by Robert Coover. For my recommendation, I went back to my very limited reading of detective fiction. And I thought, okay, so we read this dense novel with a kind of anti-hero in a world of horrible nastiness. And the case is resolved in the end, but not really. That's not really what I want for my crime fiction. I get why it exists, but I want, you know, something neat. I want someone clever to solve a case in a very clever way. And there is no one who does it quite like the original, like Sherlock Holmes. So I would recommend reading the Sherlock Holmes short stories. You've probably encountered them in some way. Again, something that has been parodied, something that has been remixed and pastiched. But the stories themselves really hold up. I just love reading one of those Sherlock Holmes stories, following along as he cleverly analyzes a case and finds the solution every time. So my recommendation would be, if you want something simple, light, a literary snack, you could say, read the Sherlock Holmes short stories. But actually, I would like you to recommend something to me. Because in the Sherlock Holmes stories, it's again a guy going out and solving cases that oftentimes women bring to him. And he has another guy along who he might or might not be going to bed with. But I'm sure there must be some crime novels that have women as investigators, that have women at the center. If you know any detective fiction with female protagonists or where women are not just the people who bring the cases or the people who fall all over the detective, literally, please send an email to outsideofadogcast at gmail.com, which is where you can generally get in touch with us. You can also find us on Facebook. You can find us at Outside of a Hound at Twitter. And you can go to iTunes, where you subscribe to the podcast, and rate and review us. iTunes doesn't actually count how many subscribers we have. They only rate us based on how many ratings and reviews we have. So if you do that, you really are helping us out in a major way. So that was it for the dark side of literature. Jonas, what are we going to read next time? Is it something more light and fluffy? Light and fluffy would not be how I would describe it. It was the Oscars recently, and I thought, why don't we read a book 
whose adaption was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. And I was pretty sure that I knew which book would win Best Adapted Screenplay, but then the big short somehow won. We're not going to read that. Instead, we're going to read Emma Donoghue's Room. You're tearing me apart, Jonas! Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. But it's still interesting to see it in this world where there are so much horrible things going on. Still. Many horrible things. Horrible things are countable, still. Even though we live in a horrible world, oh, d- horrible yeah, things are so countable. Yeah, so much, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Pedant man strikes again. That he says, hey, 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 hey. No. Hey, hey, hey. No, 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 no he, doesn't. he doesn't. He says, hey. He doesn't say, hey. What's going on?